there's a, there's a cartoon that's on PBS. I don't know if it's still on PBS or not. Thankfully, we're kind of moving out of this stage of cartoon watching. But uh, Bob the Builder uh, is a cartoon that I certainly watched many times when kids were younger. And it's funny how I know that our other kids were watching just shows just like this when they were Kara's age. But when you the youngest one of the bunch, they start watching other things. So she's watching Star Wars and stuff. But... Um, but in each episode, Bob the Builder and his gang, which is made up of people, animated people, and then little machines that talk and stuff like that. But they, they help with construction projects, renovations, repairs, that kind of thing. And, and, and the kind of the way the show works is when they all work together, there's really nothing they cannot do. There's no job too big for Bob and his little gang of workers. And so the catchphrase of Bob the Builder is, can we fix it? And all the gang says... Oh, thank you. All right, I'm not alone. Good. Uh, it's a it's a cute show, and and certainly better than some of the other shows, <laughs> cartoons that are on PBS. But um, I thought about deep thoughts this week as I was preparing for this message. But I thought about uh, Bob this week and studying for this passage. And the crux of the passage is it gets to this question that Jesus turns and asks to Philip. We read it just a moment ago. And he and it's kind of implied to the other disciples as well, but he, he directs it to Philip and he basically asks, can we fix it? <laughs> can we do this? Or really, can we can we feed them, Philip? And and Jesus is wanting to get him and wanting to get the twelve to the place where they wholeheartedly respond, no, <laughs> we can't. We can't do this. We can't feed them. But, Jesus, you can. You can. That, that's, that's what this whole episode is set up for. It's to, it's, to, it's to get the disciples there and to get us there. And that's what I want us to see this morning. This is this basic and essential but difficult and lifelong lesson that we all have to learn. We can't. But Jesus can. That's so simple, but so profound. And I mean, the, the, if, if you grew up in the church as a child, the first song, no doubt, you learned was Jesus Loves Me. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably know the words, at least part of the words, to Jesus Loves Me. And there's a line, we are weak, but He is strong. I mean, that, that's a simple truth and one that a child can grasp. And it's such a great truth to, to put in our kids' minds and hearts. We, you're weak, but Jesus is strong. And yet, it's also, it's, it's so difficult that, to really grasp that truth that we spend the rest of our lives really trying to come to grips with the, with the fullness of what that little line is saying. We're weak. Christ, you're strong. You're able. We can't. You can. We're unable. You're able. We're weak. You're strong. I mean, that's, that's it. And so we need this. We need this. You need this this morning. You and I need this. Maybe you came in here and you, you feel like your life's just kind of firing on all cylinders right now. And everything's going well. And, but you and I need this. We can lose sight of how desperately dependent we are on Christ for everything in our lives. So we need a heaping, helping dose of I can't this morning. That I need Christ. I need you, Lord. Every hour I need you. And then others of you, you're coming in here and it feels like the wheels of your life have come off. 
Maybe it's through some suffering you're going through, through some sickness, disease, pain, injury, job loss, some move, some maybe it's persecution in the environment you're in, workplace, abandonment by by someone that you love, death. I mean, whatever it is, you, you just feel undone. Or maybe it's because of sin in your life that there's you've you've done something and you've or you're just you're just rotting away on the inside. Maybe it's not because of some action that that is, your life is coming unraveled, but it's just there's this emptiness inside and and, and there's hopelessness and darkness. So, so maybe it's your own sin that's caused this, or or maybe it's that someone has sinned against you and that happens and 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 people sin against us and it just has brought this disaster in our lives. And we're just broken and, and scared and, and, and feeling powerless and not sure how we're going to go on. And into that, we, we need to remember that in the most impossible of circumstances, Jesus can. He's able. So wherever we're at, we need, we need this truth in our, in our hearts and our lives today. So the, as, as uh, Ed alluded to, this miracle here in John 6, 1-14, it's... It's one of only two miracles that's recorded in every gospel account. And the other is the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, so this is significant. And, and yet, what we'll see is John's focus is, is unique from the other gospel writers. They all have their kind of areas of emphasis. And that's not unusual. We could all go to and, and witness the exact same event. And we would come away reporting different aspects of it and focusing on different parts and we wouldn't contradict one another and and we're not we're all telling that we could all tell the truth but we would see it differently and emphasize different things depending on who we were talking to and and so that's what you have and and this is all under the inspiration of the holy spirit but john has unique emphasis he's he's wanting he's got a specific purpose in in recounting this scene and he and, and this is true with his whole gospel account. He says at the end, he says, I, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you all of the things that have already been said about Jesus and others have already witnessed to these things of Christ. I'm telling you things for a very specific reason. So he's kind of handpicking events, most of which are unique to his account. And, and he lays his gospel out more thematically than chronologically. And so if you're working through the life of Christ and the chronology of Christ, John's probably not the gospel that's going to be of most help. That's not to say that, that he, he cares nothing about chronology. No, it generally works. He's working toward the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, but but, he, but he, 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 he skips a lot in there. And so that's not his, his point is to work through these themes. And so you can basically ignore the chapter break between chapter 5 in chapter 6 of John. Those are not part of the original writings in the New Testament. Those were later editions just to help us. So that we, when we say John, turn to John 6, we, that's a lot easier than saying, uh, turn to, you know, this, find this sentence in, in the Gospel of John. We can, it's a convenience for us. But those were not original. And so there's this definite connection between this scene, this scene that we're looking at today and Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders that we saw in chapter 5 and finished looking at last week. And so John 5 ended with Jesus pointing to Moses. Moses was the one, Jesus said, on whom the Jews set their hope. Moses was their man. He was their guy. 
And, and they, they relied upon doing what Moses said in the lost in order to, to have any hope of right standing before God. And so they, they fixed their hope on Moses. And Jesus says what though? He says, you know what? On judgment day, it's going to be the testimony of Moses that condemns you. Because he pointed to me as the Christ. And you didn't believe me. You didn't believe in me. And so he turns that kind of turns the tables on there and how they're thinking about Moses. And so then John goes right into the feeding of the 5,000. Now this event happens sometimes, sometime later in Jesus' ministry. But John connects these two together because, again, he's thinking more thematically. And so this whole chapter is full of these links to Moses. That's what I see. I preach through the feeding of the 5,000 when we went through Matthew several years ago and I did it on Sunday nights and and I, and I really resisted the urge to go back and kind of look long at that sermon and try to pull stuff out and, you know, microwave that sermon. And, and Because I really, as I was looking through this, John is unique in how he approaches this scene. He has something he wants to say, and I want us to see it in, in its context here in John. And there's these connections that with Moses. First of all, obviously, these things happen. Verse 4 says... When the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So there's this Passover connection. Exodus, Moses, these, these, these things are being tied in here. Just the timing. Certainly there's this miraculous provision of food in the feeding of the 5,000 here that connects with God's miraculous providing of manna for, the, for His people in the wilderness. And then the connection becomes even clearer in ch- at the end of chapter 6 as Jesus, Jesus explains the significance of this miracle, this sign, by saying that Jesus is the true bread of life. So, so you see these connections and, and, and the similarities between what's happening here and, 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 and Moses are so striking that, that what we see when we get down to verse 14 and verse 15 is the people begin to... They begin to put pieces together and they say, wait a second. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 about this ultimate prophet who would come. And, and, and we're seeing this unfold before our eyes. And so they're, 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 they're pointing, they think this is, this is confirming that Christ very well may be that prophet. That's what, they're, that's what they're indicating in verse 14. But here's John's point. This is what I think John is, this is why he has it here, what he's doing. He's, He's making the connection that just as Moses and, and the Exodus were the focus of God's deliverance of His people in the Old Testament. That was who God used and what He used. In a greater way, there's deliverance that's an even greater deliverance available through Jesus Christ by faith. That's what He's pointing to. That's the connection that's being made. And we'll work that out. And so with that in mind, there's, there's, there's this twofold purpose of this Miracle, the sign that's recorded for us here in John 6. They're like other signs that we've looked at and will continue to look at. John, you know, John wrote with a specific purpose. We've said this over and over again. He's recorded these signs so that we would see who Christ is and believe that He is the Son of God and that believing we would have life in His name. And so, so first of all, this miracle is a sign pointing people to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He's wanting to... To, to get people to believe in Jesus and have life in His name. And so it's kind of an evangelistic purpose and the sign for these crowds and even for us today. But also, it's a sign that's 
likewise designed to grow the faith of the disciples and, and of us who follow Christ. To prepare them, to prepare us for useful ministry. Um, and so he's testing, the text says. He's teaching his closest followers through this miracle. And the lesson that he's driving home to them, again, this is our, this is our outline this morning, and I'll repeat it many times, simply this. We can't, but Jesus can. And that's it. That's, 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 the, that's the point of the spear this morning. That's something that the crowds needed to believe in order to be saved. They, they needed to understand that we're, we're justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, not by any works of the law, not by any good in us. We can't, we can't ever attain to the righteousness of God on our own. We cannot do it. We need Christ. And this miracle communicates that. It also speaks to those who are Christ followers, to the disciples, that this is something we need to continue to grow in believing in order to be useful in service for Christ. That we can't do it without you, Lord. We need you. We need you. We need you. All right, we're in John 6, verse 1. Let's look at the text with me again. After this, and this would be a while after this event, but it was sequentially after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, look down verse 3. We'll come back to verse 2. But Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, <coughs> excuse me. John doesn't, doesn't tell us this, but we know from the other gospel accounts that when Jesus and the disciples went away, they were, they were whooped. They were tired. Um, exhausted from from weeks on end of preaching and teaching and healing. And remember, the, Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs, and they've gone out uh, preaching and healing, and from town to town and village to village, and Jesus has been doing this. And there just crowds around them all the time, and, and it's, it's, it's just, it, and then facing opposition. And so they need some R&R. And so they go away, cross the sea, for Jesus to spend some time alone with his disciples for rest and also so that he can teach them. He can teach them and particularly his connection here with the Passover. And he has some things he wants to say in, the, in this light. And, and so it was normal for his disciples to go up on a mountainside like this with his disciples. We see this other places in Jesus' ministry. Again, there were things, some things he had to say to them that they had to learn in order to be prepared for what lay ahead for them. And it wasn't that they needed to needed to have more Bible trivia in their head. So they wasn't there was no it's not why they were going up on the mountain to give some more facts. It was that they needed to grasp the incomparable greatness and all sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's really the lesson. That's what he wants them to get. That that's essential to their training and their preparation for future service and faithful service. And I would just say in, in that light to, to you this morning is, do, do, you want, do you want to really live with zeal for Christ? Do you, do you want to be this faithfully devoted follower of Jesus Christ where, wherever He's put you? Do, do you want to not just kind of exist as a Christian and to kind of get by as a Christian, but do you want to, do you want to live with a sense of abandon for the cause of Christ? Or whatever you ask, I'll obey. You want to live with this, this 
overflowing joy in knowing Jesus Christ. To be, to be unashamed of the gospel of Christ wherever He puts you. Then, if that's true, then you have to grasp again the lessons that Christ is teaching here. The difference between those who really, who God uses to really make a mark on the world for Christ and the difference between those people and the rest of us. It's not IQ. It's not some skill set. It's not education. It's not family ties. It's not your background. It's not, it's, it's not your, uh, some talent you have. It's not your influence. It's not your affluence. It's not any of those things. I mean, you, you look at the disciples. They're this ragtag group of ordinary, unimpressive nobodies. Most of them were fishermen. Just, but see how God used them. And so what set them apart was that they developed this confidence in Christ and, and this devotion to Him. They, and, they, and they didn't come, become passionate about Christ by earning degrees and by honing certain skills. It was, it was that their, their devotion and their influence was found in how they came to grasp the power and the grace and the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ. That's what it was. And that is available to every single one of us. I mean, you, there's a lot of things that you may never be in life, you may ne- never be able to do in life, but you can be enamored with Christ, enthralled by Christ. And God can use you in extraordinary ways. I don't mean it will always be flashy and you're going to end up on a stage speaking to thousands of people or, or be on the, you know, the front page of the Christian magazines and stuff like that and held up as as example. It may be quiet and it may be a secret. God will do tremendous things through your life if you will just yield yourself to Him and will will begin to grasp this most basic lesson that is being taught here again, that we, we are weak. Christ is strong. I need Him. I need Him, I need Him. And that's my prayer for you and me this morning and for our church this morning is, as we look here that, that we, would, we would live with this uncharacteristic type of zeal for Christ. Something that people around us scratch their heads at and try to figure us out. To love Him, to be devoted to Him, to, that, that all of our lives are about Him. And for that to be true, again, we're going to have to grasp His greatness. We're going to have to see what the disciples saw in this event, in this scene. And, and, and so we've got to kind of dust our minds off. With, as we walk through the actual miracle now, we have to kind of dust our minds off just from the familiarity of this passage. Because what do we have? If you grew up in church, you've got little flannel graph images of this of this little episode or kind of cartoonish coloring sheets. And, and that's what we think about this scene. But this is real, church. This really happened. Time and space. And on this grassy hillside on the east side of the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. And these events are real. Jesus is real. And, and we need to grasp that. And so, so the twelve needed to learn. They could not make it on their own without Christ. But Jesus was all, all powerful and we would meet every need. So verse 2, we skip verse 2. Let's go back there. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him. So Jesus goes away across the Sea of Galilee. And this large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing 
on the sick. So Jesus had been performing dozens, probably hundreds, possibly thousands of miracles um, in that during that time and in that region. These very public miracles, people have taken notice. And so Jesus leaves Capernaum on the west side of the Sea of Galilee by the boat. So he leaves by boat and and, and yet these crowds kind of see which way he's heading and they go on foot on the kind of around the north side of the north shore of the Sea of Galilee trying to kind of go and meet Jesus where he's going to end up on the on the east side. And so as they travel around that north shore of the Sea of Galilee, they talk to people and 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 tell people what they're doing and about this Jesus. And so people join them and it's kind of this snowball effect is this crowd follows in pursuit of Jesus across around the Sea of Galilee. And so and and unique to the timing is that as the text says, this was at the time of the Passover, before the Passover. So you had all these pilgrims that were going southwest to Jerusalem for the Passover and then strangely, you had all of these crowds going the wrong way, going northeast, away from Jerusalem, uh, northeast, around the Sea of Galilee. And so these pilgrims are coming down, these crowds are going up, they're talking, what are you doing, and where are you going? And, 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 and so they begin telling them, and so again, this just builds. And, and, and so in just a few short hours, really, is all we're talking about, this crowd swells to these unprecedented numbers. It's just building around just in the short time that Christ has made it across in a boat. And so verse 5, the disciples are up. He's teaching the disciples. And shortly after they arrive, verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. I mean, I just get a picture of that. This is just dust stirring up and you're seeing these people just flooding in to this grassy hillside. All this excitement. It's going on, people streaming in to this little remote foothill above Bethsaida, on, above the shore of the Sea of Galilee there. We know from parallel accounts that Jesus then began healing all the sick who came to him during this time as they're there and crowds are milling around. Jesus is healing people and teaching people. And so it's this, it's this electric atmosphere. It's kind of this concert-like atmosphere and all these people are being healed and they're happy and, and they don't want to leave. It's just this tremendous scene. And all this is going on. And then Jesus, and I said, we say feeding of the 5,000 and we'll see that that's 5,000 men. We know from Mark that there were also women and children. So this could have been 15, 20 plus thousand people that are there. So this is a mass Phillips Arena holds about 18,000 people during a Hawks game. Now, there's not that many people there at a Hawks game, but at maximum capacity. Um, but it's playoff. Hey, we're, we're looking good. So, um, uh, so, but just, just, just picture that size of crowd, though on foot, coming to this place, this remote place. I mean, this is impressive. So all this is going on. Crowds are, this hordes of people are making their way there. And Jesus starts the dialogue. And he leans over to Philip and he asks the Bob the Builder kind of question. Philip, can we fix it? Verse 5, the end of verse 5. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Any idea how we're going to feed all these people, Philip? 
And the wheels start turning for Philip. I mean, this is classes in session here. Jesus is teaching his first lesson, and it's, it's begun. And verse 6 says, He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. So, so it's, a, it's a big setup. It's, it's a setup. It's, it's a setup to put Christ's power on display and to teach these disciples a lesson they had to learn. It's this massive field exercise for the twelve here. And it just happens to involve about 20,000 people, hungry people. So Jesus just drops this logistical nightmare in Philip's lap. How are we going to feed him, Philip? And I can imagine if I put myself in Philip's shoes, I, I, the heartburn just immediately sets in. And I'm looking for Tums or something because I, I know. Because here's the situation. Most people have dropped everything to go out there to be with Jesus, to hear him, to be healed by him. They've made no provision for what they would need to eat later. They brought no, they had no time to pack a lunch. They just went. And so there's this dilemma that the number of disciples is an issue. Twelve. The, the, the size of the crowd is an issue. Again, 15, 20,000 plus growing. Time is an issue. It's getting late in the day. We learn this from the parallel accounts. The location is an issue. They're practically in the middle of nowhere. No major cities nearby. There's some kind of dinky little villages around. Money is an issue. They don't have nearly enough. I mean, even if food happened to be available in nearby villages enough to feed this many people, they they can't afford to buy everyone a meal. And so how does Philip respond? Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. A denarius was a day's wage for a normal worker. And so 200 denarii would that'd be about seven to eight months wage for one man. And, and so that amount of money isn't even going to touch this need. Now you can't even get everybody a little airline size bag of peanuts for that. I mean, just to kind of take the edge off. I mean, there's nothing. That, 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 even that large amount of money, which would have been a lot, is not going to touch this need. 20,000 people. So, Philip, we, we can't buy enough food for these people. We can't do this, Jesus. And that's exactly the answer Jesus is looking for. We can't do it. It's impossible. And that's, that's the first lesson. We can't. We can't. Jesus wanted any sense of self-sufficiency to be uprooted and replaced with this humble and faith-filled desperation. That's what Christ is looking for. In Philip and in us. I can't. That's not popular in our day and time, is it? We are the age of self-esteem and self-sufficiency. Where there's a will, there's a way. But what Philip has realized, there is no way for the disciples to will enough food to feed all these people. It's not going to happen. We can't do this. And so, so, so this is it. Jesus kind of kicks things off by asking this question to Philip. Can we do this, Philip? Can we feed him? Philip deliberates for a while, then comes back and answers Jesus. And, and as you put the, this is where I do find help in putting the parallel accounts together. As you put these together, you realize that 
Jesus basically just went back to healing people. <laughs> he just kind of dropped this in the lap of the disciples and walked away and went on teaching and healing. And, and so the, he leaves the twelve sitting there to think about the situation. And so they're crunching numbers and, you know, counting pennies and, and formulating a plan, trying to figure out how they're, how they're going to administrate this whole thing. And, and, and Jesus is, is going on. And so they come back to Jesus then with this, the only reasonable solution that they can come at, come, come up with. And it's basically this. Lord, we thought about it and people are just going to have to fend for themselves. <laughs> Matthew tells it like this in verse 15 of chapter 14. The place is desolate. The hour is already late. This is the disciple speaking to Jesus. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. You just can see defeat, basically. I mean, you know, 12 men planning a meal, a large meal, is always going to be kind of a hopeless situation. <laughs> we got a men's night out coming up this Friday night, guys, and we'll, we'll, we don't have 20,000 people, but just bear with us. We're going to have food, but it's not going to be pretty. Uh, it's going to be good, but it's not going to be cute. <laughs> uh, and so, so the solution of the disciples is basically take out, you know, go, go find something. Uh, and you you figure it out. There's villages around. Just scramble. Do what you can. First first one gets there is the one that's going to get the food. But again, 20,000 20, hungry people. And so the disciples are saying, again, this is impossible. We can't do it. It's not humanly possible to feed this many people in this desolate place with these time parameters and these limited resources and Jesus has them right where he wants them. Sort of. And I say sort of because you can almost still kind of detect this hint of self-confidence in the disciples as they have their, offer their suggestion to Jesus. This is their well-thought-out suggestion. This is what they came up with, and they're kind of proud of themselves maybe. I don't know. Maybe they think Jesus is going to be proud of them. It's not ideal, but it, it'll have to do. But Jesus completely rejects their solution. And again, we look in Matthew, we see this, and Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. He's just tightening the screws on them here. If they didn't need to go away, then there, there must be some factor that they have not taken into account yet. And I don't know if they're looking around thinking, okay, is there some secret stash of food? Do you have some money bags that we don't know about? Is there like a food truck parked around the corner or something? And uh, I, so they're, they're, But the point is, again, it's this. Is there something you have not accounted for? They had not taken into account the extraordinary power and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so the first lesson is we can't. And, and the disciples finally seem to get that one. But that sets Jesus up for the second lesson, and it's that He can. He is able. And, and, and understanding, so understanding our inability is only the first part. We have to move beyond that to see that Jesus is more than able to meet whatever need we have in our lives. From, the, from, our, from our conversion, from our salvation, our greatest need, to any other thing that happens in our lives. Christ is able. And, and so given all that they had seen over the past 24 months in following Jesus and all that they've witnessed in the miracles and all that they've heard Him teach and, and they, they'd still not really begun to grasp 
the gravity of the greatness of Christ and His power and His, His grace even, and His authority. He's beyond what they could imagine. That's why it never even occurred to them that, oh, Jesus, you can do this. You can feed this crowd. They, didn't, they, they never went to Jesus with that thought that Christ could do it. And so Jesus is he's pushing, he's pushing their faith in Him out to the limits here. He's just stretching them and far beyond any level of trust in Christ that they have experienced or exhibited up to this point. And so, so, so get to verse 8. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? In other words, Okay, Jesus, we'll give them what we have, but it is not much. It is going to be a very short meal. And we are going to have some very angry, hungry people on our hands in just a moment. And hungry people are angry people, aren't they? We, we, yeah, I know. Dinner's late today. Your kids will be at each other's throats. And, um, but, so we'll, we'll do what you say, but this is not going to look good. This is, this is honestly, it's going to be embarrassing. This is it. It's all we have. And so they have this little boy's basically sack lunch that his mommy made for him when he left that morning. This is a kind of a, as I was telling my daughter, it's kind of like a first century version of a Lunchable. Uh, I mean, this is not much. This is like a snack, basically. Uh, for one child, one meal for one child, that's it. And so it's so it's almost laughable how little food there is. So, I mean, the side, Andrew's asking, what is this for so many people? This is nothing. Barley loaves. Now, don't think big, you know, American loaf of bread where you have all, you know, 24 slices or whatever in there. Or, or even like some French baguette or something. Like that. That's not it. It's a, a barley loaf is like a little squished hamburger bun, like half a hamburger bun flattened, like a small pancake or something. That's five of those. And two fish. Don't Again, don't think, you know, uh, some big monster wahoo or something like that. I mean, these are little little herring, I mean, kind of like a little herring type fish or something like just a small fish, pickled fish. I've got, I, I brought it. I got you. I got you covered. This is it right here. This is, don't worry, I've, I've got it. They didn't have vacuum sealer, uh, sealers back then. Uh, I do, and you can be thankful, especially those on the front row, because you would be smelling this right now. I went to H Mart last night and found two small fish. And these little five little loaves. And so here, here it is. This, is. this is what they came up with. 20,000 people. So just picture 20,000 people behind me right now. And this sitting in front of them. And it says, that's it. That's what we got, Jesus. So how much money? Not, not enough. Not nearly enough. Nearest town? Too far? Time is it? It's too late. Send them away? No, you feed them. Okay, we will. Sit. That's what we got. And so, again, this is exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. This is right where they needed to be in order for them to learn what they needed to learn so they could do what Jesus wanted them to do. And, and, and so they, they're getting this heaping helping of their inability. We can't do it, Jesus. This is not possible. 
And again, it's, it's only when the disciples are fully aware of their limitations, their inability, the, the insurmountable obstacles that are in front of them, and their backs are against the wall, it's there that Jesus gets to the real reason he's out there in the first place with the disciples. It's all, again, this setup. And again, I picture Jesus kind of circled around with his disciples and sitting right in the middle of them is, is this little napkin and five little pieces, five little dinner rolls basically and a couple scrawny fish. And again, behind them is this bustling crowd of 20,000 hungry people trying to straining to look and see what's going on and what's going to happen. And, and, and then what happens? Jesus takes charge. He takes charge. And the disciples, they've given up. This is nothing. And Jesus basically says, watch and learn, guys. Watch and learn. And so verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Again, women and children as well. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. That's it. And and, and, and that's that's the account. I mean, that's pretty understated for what's just ha- what's happening here. I mean, the way John describes it, it's pretty just. He doesn't use a lot of words. Doesn't use a lot of description here. It's a very understated, just a few simple words, because the emphasis isn't really on the miracle itself. The emphasis, as John records it, is more on the interaction that he has with the disciples. This is, this is all a setup to test him, to teach them something about himself. And it's a sign to the crowds. That's the important thing. And so Jesus has them sit down. We know from Mark that he has them kind of grouped in groups of hundreds and fifties and so why sit down? Well, one, obviously it helps with organization. That's a logistical nightmare to feed 20,000 people in the, uh, basically camping out in this grassy area. It's also, it's, it's showing that this is something formal. It's something official that's about to take place. Jesus is the host at a feast. And so he has everybody seated. And again, in keeping with the whole purpose of this account, I think it's also there for shock effect for the disciples. Because when Jesus, when Jesus has everybody seated, they know they're, they're expecting food. And the disciples are thinking, oh no. There is, we are past the point of no return now. They are, they are expecting to eat. We have this. And then also, I think he's, he's having the, everybody sit down so that everybody can see. They're on this kind of sloping grassy area and I don't doubt that because the whole point was for it's, it's a sign that people can see that Jesus is the one providing this food. And so Jesus wants everybody to see this, to see him, to see where the food's coming from, the miracle he's performing. And, and so this is, this is it. This is the way it's to stay. Now, some there have been people that try to discredit this miracle. And, they're, and they only discredit this miracle because they want to discredit the whole Bible. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing, but some of the suggestions are just crazy. But some suggest that what actually happened was a, was a miracle of spontaneous generosity. So you have, you have this little boy who comes to Jesus, and I kind of picture like Tiny Tim or something like that. And here, here, Jesus, you can have my sack lunch. And, 
and uh, and, and take this and, and let feed everybody with it, Jesus. And they're oh, that's so cute. And and the adults' hearts are warmed, and 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 they 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 start you know think, they start feeling guilty and conscience, and they have these lunches that they'd hidden in their tunics, and they start pulling them out and sharing them with everybody. And before long, everybody's eaten and full. I, I'm telling you, I read something. This is that's crazy. Others have said that. The people became so engrossed in the teaching of Christ and they became, that they became oblivious to their hunger. And so they're so just in rapture with what Christ is saying. And, and it's only when this small boy takes out his little picnic lunch and starts eating that they think, Oh, you know, um, I brought something too. And then they be all, all begin to eat and everybody's full. I mean, this is, this is baloney. I mean, this, is, this miracle is confirmed by the four gospel writers. It's, it's 20,000 people, very hungry but filled people witnessed this. They, they didn't just get a little snack to munch on. They had their bellies filled. They were satisfied. They, they were full. Verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill. That's important because likely these people had never eaten this much food at one sitting in their life. I mean, they, they, they were used to. Most people in this crowd would have been used to eating and still being hungry. They just didn't have much. They worked hard just to just to provide a bare minimal diet, just to just subsistence living. And yet this was a feast. They ate all they wanted. They ate all the fish, all the bread that they wanted. It's just a feast. And I guess just just say as a side, I mean, this is this is what Christ offers to us in Himself. It's a feast. Salvation is a feast. He doesn't hold out to us just kind of a little, a little dry, stale snack of some kind of religion and say, here, just nibble on this until you die and get to heaven and then it gets good. No, he says, this is a feast. Come to me. I'll give you living water. Come and eat, drink. No money, no cost. Salvation is this wonderful gift. If you haven't tasted of it, if you haven't haven't known, if you haven't trusted in Christ and known this, then I invite you to come to Him even today. And if you are in Christ, maybe you've forgotten, maybe the ash layer, there's a thick ash layer over your life because of your own sin or because of some other situation, circumstance in your life, but you've, you've grown cold and the, the embers have grown cold. They're still there, but they're, they're, they're cold. Just pray that God would blow upon your life, revive your heart to see the great gift that is salvation in Christ. It's a feast that He invites us to. Life in Him. Abundant, eternal, abundant life. And so, so they had eaten, they had eaten their feel and there were leftovers. He told His disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them, gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the barley, five barley loaves that they had uh, left by those who had eaten. And so, this is where, again, I think it's helpful to, to kind of put the parallel accounts together to understand the impact of the lesson on this, on this, of this lesson on the disciples and, and on the crowd. And so we, we, we can learn kind of how Jesus administered this miracle here. John doesn't elaborate on it. But from Mark's account, we, we get more detail. And it's not that John, or that Jesus filled the baskets of these 12 disciples, you know, filled the baskets one time, maybe took a little fragment out of each you know, cut the fish in pieces and cut the bread in little small pieces and put a little bit in each basket. And then as they went out, they just kept grabbing and it just kept coming out like these magical baskets or something like that. 
I don't, I don't think that's how it happened, according to Mark's account. What seems to happen is that, that Jesus filled the baskets. I mean, the, the food is coming from him. Again, I don't know what that looked like or how that, you know, how that appeared. But this food comes from them. They go out. They empty their baskets. They come back. Jesus fills their baskets again. They go out. I mean, this happened for hours. 20,000 people, folks. I mean, we, we, some of us go to the Together for the Gospel conference. It just happened this last week in Louisville. It's about 8,000, you know, hungry pastors there for, and, and church leaders there for a week. And, I mean, mealtime is like, I mean, it's cutthroat. We're like pushing each other and shoving each other and trying to get food. And it takes two hours to, to feed that many guys. It's chaos. But 20,000 people. And, and here they are being fed. And, and, and over and over again, the disciples go out with full baskets. They come back empty, go back with full baskets, come back empty. Jesus fills them every time. And at the end, there's leftovers. And the food never stopped. So the people, they, they see what's happening and they're thinking, how is this, how is this possible? Where's the food coming from? What, what kind of power is this? Who is this man? Verse 14, when the people saw the sign, they're seeing this that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is the prophet, the one Moses spoke of. And no doubt his disciples returned to Jesus every time and saw him fill the baskets. They're, they're basically thinking the same thing. Who is this? I mean, we've been following him now for two years, but who is this? We've never seen power like this greater than anything they'd imagined. I mean, they'd seen a lot of miracles, but nothing like this. And so in the face of, in the face of impossible circumstances, Jesus just displays this incredible power to overcome the impossible. Whatever your greatest thoughts of Jesus are, of his power, of his grace, of his authority, of his sufficiency, whatever your, whatever, however great your thoughts of Christ are, they're not great enough. And that's what the disciples are getting here. We're just scratching the surface in terms of our understanding of the fullness of who Christ is. We all need to grow, and we'll be growing forever. And so the disciples, again, they're they're walking around for hours, full baskets, empty baskets, full baskets, empty baskets, full baskets, empty baskets, ending with full baskets. And and and, and all, what are they saying? We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. We were hopeless. This is all we saw. But Jesus could. He did. He's doing it. It's crazy. And there's this, this awareness of their ineptitude, their impotence, and Jesus' power and his sufficiency that's, that was going to be crucial for the rest of their lives and their ministries. They, they went forward after, after Christ rose and ascended crucified, rose, ascended. They went forward, and you see it played out in the book of Acts. Look, turn to Acts chapter 4 with me. Acts chapter 4. And, and, they, and they go forward, not with some kind of air of self-confidence and a can-do attitude. We can do anything for Christ. That's not how they went out. They, they went out happily helpless in themselves. They knew they could do nothing apart from God, but they went boldly in the power of God, knowing that Christ was able and so you get into Acts chapter 4 and verse 19 and 20 there. Peter and John are arrested. They're, they're, they're roughed up and they're threatened not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And verse 19 says, whether it is right in the sight of God 
to give heed to you rather than to God. You be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's courage. Go down to verse 23. Now when they were released, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God in boldness. You just see it's all about Christ. It is not about them. It is not what they can do, how, how capable they are, how skilled they are, how educated they've become, how strong and courageous they are in themselves. It is all about Christ. What He has done, what He is doing, His power at work through them, that's it. It's changed them. I'm not saying this scene in the on this grassy hillside was everything, but it was a big part of the lesson that they're learning right here. It really came clear after Christ rose from the dead. So, I just say, nothing grows our, our faith like this deep abiding conviction that I can't. I can't. But Jesus, you, you can. You're able. Nothing makes us more useful to God in his service than that. I mean, that's all of us, but I was just thinking and praying for our, our elders and our deacons and other church leaders in this church. What, what people need most from us is not, it's not, it's not some intellectual acumen. It's not, it's not some oratory abilities or, you know, be able to master leadership principles. They need, they need us to be Enamored with Christ. A large view of Him. A small view of self. Nothing makes us better husbands and wives and fathers and mothers than this. Nothing makes us better able to endure trials that God brings us through. Nothing makes us more courageous and gospel witness in understanding that I, I can't do this, but you can, Christ. You're able. Nothing gives just life and vibrancy to our worship corporate worship and your own personal worship of the Lord. I mean, this, this, this miracle shows that Jesus is God's agent for meeting every need we have. But I would say this, the Christ's work of providing on that grassy hillside by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, it was later eclipsed in a big way by His work of providing on a barren hill outside of Jerusalem called Mount Calvary. And it's there that the greatest provision was ever made. 
the atonement for sin. And, and as astonishing as this miracle was, the feeding of, again, these thousands of people with the sack lunch, there, there would be something greater. Jesus would die. He would pay for the sins, for all of our sins. And then he would rise from the dead. And, and opening up the way to life, to salvation, to full deliverance through him. Well, John 6, turn back to John real quick and we'll end here and sing John 6. This is the next day. The people are hungry. They're looking for food again. <laughs> uh, this is us. This is so us. <laughs> John 6, verse 26. Uh, Jesus said to answer them, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It's not because you really grasped my power and what I was doing. You just got your bellies filled. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28, And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him. Whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do so that that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. There you go. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world and they said to him sir give us this bread always jesus said to them i i am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger whoever believes in me shall never thirst let's pray jesus you offer to us unquenchable uh, satisfaction to our thirst that seems unquenchable you give, offer us to be satisfied, hunger that, and you, you offer us bread, you offer us drink in yourself, never to be thirsty again, never to be hungry again. Lord, if there's anyone here who's not tasted of this gift, it's not trusted in Christ, maybe is clinging to thought that they are, they, they maybe will be good enough in the end, that they'll be able to get their life in order, but do enough, do enough rituals, uh, go to church enough, obey enough, avoid wrongdoing enough that they would see, no, that's never going to work. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Jesus, you did it. You paid the price for my sin. Punishment has been borne by Jesus in my place, and all I have to do is trust in him. If there's anyone here who's not trusted, it does not tasted of this, the bread of life in Jesus Christ today, I pray that today would be that day. And for the rest of us, may we find, continue to find our satisfaction in Christ and Him alone. The glorious Christ, we ask in His name. Amen.